Well, again, good morning, and uh, for those who've joined us online since we began our service, welcome, and we're so glad you are with us today, uh, virtually, and so we're expecting great things from the Lord this morning. If you want to grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, we're going to continue in our study, working through this book and a series that we've simply called Get Ready, and um, I think it's obviously very fitting for where we are right now. And just things happening the way they are just makes, makes people begin to wonder how close is the end. Well, I don't know when it's going to come, but I do know this. It's a day closer than it was yesterday. Amen? And he will return. Uh, this morning the music has just been so wonderful to reminding us of what we have in Christ and what we have in the salvation he provides. I mean, fear. Think about uh, just what we're going to see even in the text this morning, the fear that we sing against and we sing and gloried in the Lord and the fact that he uh, takes our fears away. One of those things is going to be cast into the lake of fire that we're going to see in Revelation 20 in a number of weeks. And a glimpse of it this morning is fear. It's an enemy in our life. And then we think about the other songs that we've sung, God has just blessed us with such a great reminder of His goodness and of His grace. And also, in the midst of all that, we're thankful for the nation in which we live. Uh, God has blessed us to be a part of this great country. A- anybody grateful to be an American this morning? I don't, I don't want us to be an a, a American rally, but we need to be grateful for that. Amen. I mean, our country is, is incredible. God has blessed us. It's just simply the grace of God that's allowed us to to be a part of such a great nation that does such great things. So, and so on this weekend, as we celebrate those who have sacrificed literally their all for our nation, for what our nation stands for, when we think about this nation and think about the idea of America, America is just that. It is an idea. America is not necessarily a certain people or, a, or even, for that matter, perhaps a certain place. America, by and large, is an idea. And what I mean by that is it's not built around a people group. It's not built around a certain culture. It's built around a set of ideas, a set of beliefs, a set of convictions. If we were to go to Israel, and many of you will be going to Israel, Lord willing, in a few months with Kara and I, uh, in January, early February. If when we go to Israel, we're going to see there a nation that is, that is a nation of Jews. It's built upon Jewish culture. If we were to go to Iran or China or Russia, those are places where there are certain peoples and certain cultures that make up that nation. That is not true of America. America is an idea. America is a nation of immigrants who have coalesced around a certain set of beliefs, a certain set of convictions, a certain right of freedoms. Namely, that's what we've coalesced around is this idea of freedom. I mean, our founders believed in freedom. They set up a nation that would protect freedom. And all of those who have served in uh, honor of that great idea, who've given their lives for that idea, died to preserve freedom so that people could be free to build a life. And so this weekend, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves of the thousands upon thousands of thousands of soldiers, men and women alike, who have served this nation and given their lives for freedom. And so we're grateful for them, grateful for their ability to do, uh, defend our citizens, to defend our culture of ideas and our constitution that enables that. And I was thinking about this just the other day, thinking about those who have sacrificed, given their life for the sake of this nation, for the sake of the ideas that we hold dear. And I was wondering, if they were, to able, if they were able to see where we are today as a nation, maybe uh, soldiers that died in World War II in, in, in Europe or in the uh, Pacific 
uh, theater and they gave their lives in service to this nation, what would they think of what they see today in this country? Would they still say it was worth it? I believe they probably would because they're heroes and they believe in this nation. But here's something else that came to my mind. What if one day down the road, we as a country decide to turn our back on this idea of freedom, turn our back on this idea of this set of beliefs that we hold dear, and instead we begin to embrace all of the ideologies that the peoples from the nations left to come to this country to embrace? What if we left those in favor of the other nations and those other philosophies? Would they still believe that their sacrifice was worth it? It's a question only we can ask. We can't really answer it. It's interesting to entertain that idea, though. When we think about what's happening here in the book of Revelation, what we're seeing is Christians, our brothers and sisters in the future, suffering, even being martyred for their faith, and yet all the while they know that their sacrifice for the gospel, their sacrifice for Christ is worth it. And here's why it's worth it. The Lord Jesus is always going to be good on the promises that he's made. And so this morning, I want to speak to this subject simply of promises kept. The Lord keeps his promises. There is freedom from sin. There is freedom from evil, freedom from the tyranny of our enemy. And all of that will come to fruition because Jesus will serve justice Judgment will be poured out upon the enemies of God, and they will forever be put down, while at the same time, the friends of God, those who are in relationship with Jesus, will be rewarded for all of eternity. The Lord keeps his promises. That's a good word. Thank you, Mark. I've missed the amens. It was kind of silent in here last week. Appreciate you sitting a little closer. Revelation chapter 11, look with me, beginning in verse 14. It says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh, angel, or the, yeah, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy Hail. The first two woes have passed. Those two woes uh, encompass the fifth and the sixth trumpet that we saw a few weeks ago as we were in Revelation chapter 9. Now the third woe, John tells us, is approaching. And the contents of this woe will really feel the remaining chapters of the Revelation. Like this breaking of the seventh seal many chapters ago, the woe here in the seventh trumpet consists of a new set of judgments which are specifically going to be found in chapter 16. There are those seven bowls. This passage here is proclaiming to us the completion of the eschaton. In other words, the end has finally come. Everything's been completed. It's revealing this cyclical nature that we see throughout the revelation. In other words, what we see glimpses of is John, as he receives this revelation, takes us to the end and brings us back. Takes us to the end a little bit more 
with a little bit more definition and brings us back. And then over and over again, we see this cyclical movement as God reveals more and more and more revelation. So the Holy Spirit is giving us this glimpse of the end before bringing us back to a description of how things will take place. So the seventh trumpet is blown. It ushers in a season of God's final and full wrath against evil. This is not particularly going to be one day. It's going to be a season of final wrath and the full wrath of God being unleashed. But before that is described, we are shown here in this passage a scene of victory at the end. We're going to see it in more definition when we get to Revelation chapter 20. It's going to be elaborated there, but here's this simple celebration, this simple glimpse of the rewarding of God's saints and the judgment being brought against the destroyers of the earth. And so in all of it, what do we see? We see that God keeps his promises. God is a promise keeper. And so whatever he's told us in his word or whatever he's promised to us as his people, he will keep that to the very end. In fact, the way John conveys this to us to make the point is 11 different times, Paul, or I would say Paul. I'm so used to saying Paul when I'm preaching out of the New Testament. John here, as he's writing and, and showing us the revelation he's given us, he uses the aorist tense translated in the past for us 11 different times to speak of something that's coming as if it's already happened. God is a promise keeper. He will fulfill his word. So here's the seventh trumpet sounds. Let's walk through the text, and I want to point out a number of things to you. Obviously, as we hear this trumpet sound, what we've seen in the first six trumpets is great things happening, miraculous things happening, judgments coming, fearful things taking place. But in this situation, again, just like in the seventh seal, there's nothing no, there's no judgment, I should say. Things are happening, but it's not a judgment. In the seventh seal, it was a time of silence. It was 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Here that is reversed in this seventh trumpet as there are loud voices beginning to speak and perhaps even sing. It's almost like a heavenly choir breaks out in declaration of the victory of God. Those loud voices... I don't believe are the voices of the glorified church. I believe these are angelic creatures like I've seen uh, like I've said thus far through this. And so the angels of heaven, myriads of angels, different levels of angels are declaring the victory of God. In fact, the reason I believe that is the statement that comes along with it. It says the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. As you read that, it doesn't simply sound like something that believers would say, that Christians would say, that the church would say. It sounds more like angels who know nothing experientially of the gospel, but only view it from afar. And they, So they're referring to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They declare the dominion of, and rule of this world have been transferred to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to reign forever and ever and ever. It tells us that the enemy's been put down. It tells us that he's been locked away. That tells us that he has no power over us whatsoever. God reigns supreme. This universal sovereignty of God is something that reoccurs all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel says in his 
in his book, he's, he predicted the day when the kingdom of God would utterly destroy the kingdoms of this world in chapter 2. Zechariah the prophet spoke of God who will be king over all of the earth. We could go to Psalm 2 and many other passages and we would see there that God will one day fully and finally reign over all that there is. With no adversary, with no enemy contending against him. So these loud voices break out in a declaration of victory. They were joined with the 24 elders. These 24 elders we saw last in chapter 7, verse 11. They join the voices as they fall down in worship and adoration of Almighty God. They sing and give thanks to the one who will enter his reign with a great display of power and might. And so this is a glorious scene of victory and power in heaven. This great power that God displays here is not some is not his omnipotence, which he has. It's speaking of how God will bring victory against the enemy. He's going to overpower them. He's going to defeat them. Speaks of this final conflict in which God does overpower all of his enemy and ushers in the reign of God, this eternal presence. It's a beautiful thing. Look what he says there in verse 17. He says, well, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Many times, I guess any, every other time that we see in Scripture a statement like this, speaking of God, past, present, there's always a third component. There's always this future component. It usually says the God who, who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, in this revelation, these 24 elders are declaring that God is present and God is past, but there is no aspect of future. It's ushering us into this eternal present with God. No more future. Christ has returned. His kingdom has finally and fully begun. And so the time now moves to a sort. We understand here that time is always moving to a certain destination. Now that destination has been fulfilled. It is completed. It has arrived. And so there's no more future. We're living with the God who is and who was without a future to come. No more redemption needed. No more sins to be covered needed. Because Jesus finally and fully reigns. This reign of God is established by divine wrath against the rage of the world. In verse 18 it says, The nations raged, but your wrath came. We as believers, though we, through, looking through the eyes of the gospel, looking through the, the eyes of grace and mercy, long for those who are outside of relationship with Jesus, who are still in bondage to their sin. We long for those people to be saved. We long for them to find redemption in Jesus. But at the same time, we also long for the justness and the justice of God to be served, that those who stand against Him and God's people would be put down. That day, at this point, has now come. God's divine wrath has enabled His full reign upon this world. Wrath has come and will come through the judgments of the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, all the things that we've been reading and will continue to see in the Revelation. It's going to culminate in this final judgment at the great white throne when those who have rejected Christ are thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20. All of our enemies will be thrown into the lake of fire. Fear will be thrown there. 
Sin in all of its forms will be thrown there. Retribution will come to all of those who are evil. But look at this. Rewards will come to all of those who are faithful. He says, your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. That, In other words, it doesn't matter what level you serve at in, the, in this in the church, or what level you serve at in salvation history, you will be rewarded. You may be the Billy Graham, the Apostle Paul, or you may be the person that no one knows your name, but all of us will be rewarded by the Lord because we've been faithful to Him. And then in verse 19, we see what I believe is the closest thing to a theophany, a appearance of God Almighty that, we, that there is in the first 19 chapters of Revelation. We see glimpses of His glory. We see glimpses of His, of his power. We see glimpses of His beauty through these, these uh, images, through these scenes that John is privy to. But we see nothing of His full glory, nothing of a full-on look into His face until we look here at verse 19. This event again takes place at the end of all history. The Holy of Holies is opened up to us here. It says God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. What is he talking about? If we know your Jewish history, if you know your Old Testament, the temple for Israel was the place where God dwelt. The ark of the covenant was the place in the temple that housed the presence of God. The law was in there. The, the, the Aaron's rod was in there. Many other things were in the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark was the mercy seats where the high priest went in once a year and sprinkled the blood of atonement for the nation of Israel. That was the place where God dwells, the Holy of Holies. When Jesus was crucified, when he was Dead on the cross, the veil within the temple tore from top to bottom, ushering in or symbolizing how now we have access to God. This full access is made manifest here as we get to see into heaven, into the presence of God, and see Him as He is. It's using images from the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant was that symbol of God's presence, that theophany, but so also was the storm. We were to look in Exodus, we were looking to the Psalms, we were to look in Isaiah, we would see pictures where the storm symbolized the power of God and the presence of God. And so God here is present in mercy in the picture of the ark. He's present here in judgment through the picture of the storm. Both of these are seen in this final theophany. The entire scene is a gracious reminder that God will faithfully carry out His covenant promises of mercy and grace while at the same time carrying out those covenant promises to destroy all of His enemies. Man's promises, we know, are not always kept. But here, God's promises are kept. Let me give you four promises that are kept in this passage by way of application this morning. First of all, we see the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. What's the big deal about the kingdom? Jesus, God the Son, when He came to this world, brings the kingdom of God. 
fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament, prophecies that God had been saying for centuries that his kingdom was going to come, that it was going to rage against sin, that it was going to rage against the enemy. And so Jesus now comes inaugurating this kingdom. In fact, Mark says it this way in his gospel. Speaking of this kingdom and what Jesus does, he tells us that when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, Mark 1. And he said this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus there was declaring, as I'm walking into Galilee, as I'm here in Israel, as I'm alive on this planet, as God the Son and man, fully God, fully human, I am the kingdom of God. It has come. But it didn't come with all of its power. Jesus didn't come with a sword. He came with a cross. When sin entered this world, a war, as we know, erupted between God and Satan over who would control it. And ever since Genesis 3, the kingdom of of darkness has seemed to have the upper hand. Time and time again, it seems like he is winning. The majority of the world follows after God's enemy. God's people have been marginalized. They've been in the minority. They've been martyred for their faith. It seems like evil is winning. Sin has enslaved humanity. It's broken creation. When Jesus came, he ushered in this kingdom of God. He began to reverse all of the things that were broken because of sin. His death and his resurrection atoned for sin. Humanity now can be set free from the bondage of sin and death. The promise of a restored creation has also been declared, but none of that has fully and finally been made available. These were promises made to us by the Lord, but they await their final fulfillment. When the judgments are unleashed on God's enemy and Jesus returns, the promise of the coming kingdom will be kept. It's going to be kept. And so as Jesus says the kingdom has come, yes, it came, and it's going to come finally and fully at the end. So what's going to happen then? Sin will be no more. Righteousness will reign. The will of God will be done throughout creation and in the hearts of God's people. So this cosmic war that's been going on for millennia and the internal war that's present within each and every one of our hearts will be over. The flesh will be conquered by the Spirit. How many of you long for that day? Where you don't have to worry about sin. You don't have to worry about giving in to temptation. You don't have to worry about this internal war that's going on that Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 7 when he'd say, you know, the things that I really, in the, in the Spirit of God, long to be doing, I find myself not doing. But the things that, that I don't want to do, those are the things that I'm naturally drawn to, and I find myself doing those. That's this internal war that's taking place. But with Jesus in the final coming, he brings in the kingdom that puts all of that to an end. So the coming of the kingdom means a second thing. The rebellious have been judged. The rebellious have been judged. See, the righteousness of God demands just retribution for sin. We ought to glory in the fact that God does not just gloss over our sin. I think we want an easy pass. We, we just wish that God would just kind of blanket check and say, you know what, sin doesn't matter. I went to the cross. It's fine. Everybody's going to be okay. Live the way you want. I'll accept you the way you want. That can't happen if God is holy. Sin has to be dealt with, and it has to be judged. It has to be punished. Demands a retribution. When the kingdom of God fully comes, 
every creature who has stood against and rebelled against God will be put down. And I say creature on purpose. Every human who stood against God will be judged. Every angelic being who fell from innocence, who stood against God, who walked in obedience to the enemy himself, will be judged and punished. Judgment will come to all wickedness. Verse 18 here declares that God's wrath will come upon those who rage against him. And we've already seen glimpses of this. In Revelation chapter 6, as the judgments, uh, preliminary judgments are being rained out, people are, rather than re- repenting of sin, are trying to hide themselves in their anger against God. We're going to see in chapter 16 that as the bowls of wrath are being unleashed, the people grit their teeth and are angry and bitter toward God's rather than being repentant. God will judge them and judge those who rage against him. No one will escape. Today, we know that just, just justice is not always served. Unfortunately, we see all the time in the media, we watch documentaries, we read books of how criminals have gotten away with their crimes. Sometimes they get off because they have friends in high places. Sometimes they get off because they have the resources to hire the best lawyers or, 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 or officials or whatever needs to be done to get them off the, the charges. Other times, they're good at covering their tracks. So the crime is never paid for. The wicked escape justice. But that wickedness and that escape is only a delay. Every sinner who has ever raised their fist in defiance against God will be judged. No one will escape the wrath of God. And this is a reassurance for us as believers. This is a reassuring thing for those who have given their life for the sake of Christ. The martyrs that we see in Revelation 6 who are asking God, how long until you avenge us? How much longer until you step in and take care of those who have killed us for the sake of the gospel? All of those are encouraged because they know that justice is being served. Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Your sin will always come back on you. God's justice will reign. The coming of the kingdom means a a third thing, I should say. The faithful have been rewarded. The faithful have been rewarded. It says there in verse 18, rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. You see, the Lord Jesus rewards those who follow him. He's good and he's gracious. He rewards us based upon our faithfulness. The things that we've demonstrated in faith in this life, he will reward. Nothing is forgotten. Nothing is missed. Whether it's in our sinfulness as we stand in rebellion against God, all of those things are remembered. Or if we're standing in grace and we're walking with him faithfully, everything we do in faith is remembered and rewarded. It's written down. Our reward is going to look different for all of us. It's going to be varying degrees of ruling and reigning with Christ. But be it known, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. And ultimately, the greatest reward we have for our faithfulness is the abiding presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our fourth thing I want you to see. One of the promises kept is the abiding presence of God has come. 
Everything that has been hinted at, everything that's been symbolized throughout salvation history is now culminating with the breaking in of God's abiding presence. It is portrayed through the images of the temple. It's portrayed through the images of the Ark of the Covenant. It's portrayed in the image of the storm. All of these symbolize the presence of God breaking in. The temple in Israel was the house of God where God dwelt. It was the location in Israel where he's, his presence abided. The ark was the seat of his essence there in the Holy of Holies. It contained his holy law. It portrayed his mercy to the people. The storm personified God's power and his might. And in all of these are made visible as God comes to abide forever with man. It's a reversal all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 where God walked with man in fellowship in all of his glory. Can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's hard for us, if not even possible for us, to go back and try to visualize what it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden with no concept of sin. Just standing there with the most magnificent, the most beautiful, and the most frightening creature, if you can even call God a creature, the, the most frightening person in the entire universe and beyond that. And yet it was an incredible beautiful, intimate thing. The abiding presence of God has come. God's told us over and over again in his word that he would never leave us or forsake us. This promise is kept as God now is fully dwelling with man and the enemies of God are destroyed as the kingdom of God has come. God is a promise keeper. For some of you this morning, that is a great word that you need to hear this morning because you're, you're struggling. Lord, where are you in all of this? What's going on? I mean, across our nation, we're seeing bad things happen. Businesses are having to shut down. People are dying. And we begin to wonder, what is happening? Who's in control of this? I can tell you this morning, God is in control, and he's been in control, and he will continue to be in control. He does not change. He is sovereign. One of the great characteristics of God is what we call immutability. He is a God who does not change. He is the same today and yesterday and tomorrow. He never changed. Along with that, he's not fickle. His love for you is not fickle. It doesn't waver in anything. It doesn't matter what you do today or what you may do tomorrow. His love is constant in your life. Everything he does, he will do. This is good news for us. It's good news for those of us who have surrendered to his lordship, who've placed our faith in his salvation. There are rewards awaiting us at the end of all things. It's bad news, though, for those who live in rebellion. For those who live in sin, there's judgment coming through God's wrath. And so all throughout the book of Revelation, I said this a few weeks ago, there's really only two types of people. I guess we could go into the, the whole Bible and say the same thing. But in the Bible, you, you see all these people from all these ite places. You know, you get Ishmaelites and Amalekites and all that. So there's people from other walks of life. But in the Revelation, you only see two types of people. Who are they? They're those who are in Christ and those who are stand against Christ. They're the saved and the lost. There's the rebellious and the redeemed. That's the only two types of people in the book of Revelation. So that tells us something about the way we should look at life. There are only two types of people in the world, those who are redeemed in Christ and those who are rebellious against Christ, those who are receiving his reward and those who will receive his 
judgment. The good news is that until we get to some of this stuff that's laid out or we die first, there's always room and time to move from those who are in rebellion to those who are in redemption. God will keep his promise. He rewards the faithful. He will judge the rebellious. Where are you at this morning? What camp do you fall in? Where is your tent pitched when it comes to that? The Bible gives us good news for all of us. Good news is that you were made by God and for God. One of my favorite, if not my favorite verse in all the Bible is Colossians 1.16 that tells us that truth right there. That we were made by God and we were made for God. That is the good news of the Bible. The bad news is that we're sinners. That's what we've been talking about. Sin has broken God's design. This past week I had an opportunity to sit down with a guy who's recently come to Christ. And we talked through his testimony. I walked through the gospel and I shared this sort of concept here. That we are loved by God, designed by God. God, but sin has brokenness. And he told me how he had begun to understand that, how he had come to the realization that that's exactly where he was, that he was longing to get out of his brokenness, searching for all sorts of things, but he had to come to a place where he understood the best news, and that is that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We call it the gospel. We call it the gospel because it is good news. It is the news that Jesus has come to pay our sin debt, to pay our penalty for sin, to take our judgment upon himself so that we could be forgiven and set free from the bondage of sin. This man told me that just a couple months ago, as he began to understand the gospel, he prayed, confessed his sin, and put his faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We'll baptize him in a couple weeks weeks. He moved from the rebellious camp to the redemptive camp. This morning, some of you in this room or some of you online may need to move from the rebellious camp to the redemptive camp. How do you do that? You do just what this gentleman did. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. My sin has separated me from you. I need forgiveness. I need life and hope. Forgive me and become the Lord and Savior of my life. That's simply what you can say. I mean, Romans 10 still tells us, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For us who are believers, this passage reminds us that everything that we're living for, it may not feel like it's coming to fruition right now. It may not feel like God's in control of all things. But never mistake, God is in control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your goodness and for your grace. God, we thank you that you are in control of all things. Lord, we thank you that though sin seems to be running rampant, that sin seems to be uh, uh, ruling everything, God, we know that it's on a short lease. We know that Satan is on a short lease. We know that he's been defeated. We know that sin has been defeated. And everyone, regardless of what they've done in their life, can turn to Jesus. All they have to do is turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Lord, I pray for those this morning, maybe in this room, online listening, those who will listen to us in the days ahead, who've never come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, I pray that they would give their hearts and life to you and experience life in Christ. Father, I pray for us as believers, encourage us, grow us, strengthen us in our faith. Help us, Lord, to be tenacious in our walk with Jesus, knowing that that what we're doing, that the faithfulness that we're seeking to, to exert in our life will be rewarded. We, it is pleasing to God. It does matter. 
And so, God, help us to walk close and clean with you all the days of our life. Lord, bless us. Continue to, as we sing just a moment ago, cause your face to shine upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Normally, we would have a come forward invitation, but in these days, we don't do those sorts of things. So this morning, here's what I want you to do. Online or sitting here in the room, if God's speaking in your